Each and every one of us has been told no in one form or another at some point of our lives. Some of us have perhaps heard no far more than we would like and could have ever imagined. Whether it's being denied when pursuing a potential love interest, not making the cut for a high school team, getting passed over for that job we interviewed for, or any other rejection, small or large, being told no is one of those difficult situations we all are forced to encounter throughout our lives. While we may not always have complete control over the responses we receive or the decisions others make that affect our lives, we certainly have the power and ability to choose how we react. Remember, life is 10% what happens to us and 90% how we react to it. So how do you handle rejection? Can you find ways to maintain optimism after being denied? Tonight's guest heard no so many times in his life, at one point he recalls thinking no was his actual name. He never wavered from his goals in life though, and the no's only motivated him and made him stronger along the way. In this episode, we dive deep into how to stay persistent, patient, positive, the power we can gain, and lessons we can learn from hearing no with our good friend, Abang Eka. You are now sitting courtside with your host, Mike Cortez. Ladies and gentlemen, I cannot wait to get into today's interview. Our guest will be sure to leave you motivated and inspired in one way or another. I guarantee it. Abang Eka lives a life of purpose and initiative in all he does, and we are lucky to have him sitting courtside with us today. So, Abang, my man, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Let's uh, let's cut right to the chase, and we'll tip sure. it off. Uh, your family is of Nigerian descent, and you were born and raised in Toronto, Canada. So, yep. take us through your younger days as a kid, growing up, and a little bit about your family history. Yeah, of course. Uh, my parents, um, obviously, they met in Nigeria. They came to the, the. My dad actually went to Howard University, his undergrad. Uh, like back in the late 60s, early 70s. And they were here, and that's when uh, the civil rights movement was going on, so they really liked that. Uh, but one of the other prob- one of the byproducts of that is what you kind of see recently with the pandemic. There's a lot of riots and stuff. And so when you come from another country, you don't really know that this is an isolated incident or not. You assume the whole country's like this. So they left and went to Canada. And then that's how we ended up in Canada. That's where I ended up being born with uh, a few of my other siblings. And my father was an urban planner architect. My mother uh, was a college professor at one point in math. And, you know, we just, we lived in Canada. Canada was open to let people come in. As long as you had some skills, they wanted you to come in. And it was a lot easier to do that. And, but I just learned a lot about, you know, the importance of work ethic through watching my parents. You know, if you know anybody who's African, it's always that joke about you got to be a doctor or a lawyer or something <laughs> to that effect, right? It's, it's that, that crazy, I mean, not crazy, but you, but it just shows the importance of having, somebody again it doesn't have to be a parent some people don't have parents to do that mm-hmm. it could be somebody uh that you consider an authority in your life uh being able to give you encouragement and push you towards another way you may not end up being a doctor i obviously didn't um but that that initial push got me kind of got me going like an avalanche of sorts so before we get more into your basketball and professional journey please share with us your approach to life as a stoic and provide a little more detail into what stoicism is and how that plays a role in your life now uh, the funny thing is, uh, so stoicism, I started uh, understanding, I started looking into stoicism and understanding what that really was, uh, I'd say about six, seven years ago. And the main reason was I had I had three or four, I had three people I knew that died during that year. I, I had to put my dog down at the time. Uh, one of my good friends, his wife had cancer and passed away. And then I had a, a, someone who was part of a business group that I was uh, I was involved with. She got hit by a car and died. She was like 30 at two. It was insane. And so there's two ways you can look at life. And what stoicism gave me was understanding that all I need to do is think about now where I am, my present. It doesn't mean you don't think about the future. It just basically means that you're aware of the present. And so too many people abdicate uh, the present for the future. They say one day and if in the future. And so they give up on a time that they can only control now. Like the past I can't control. That's done. The future is literally a fantasy because you, you don't know what it's going to be like. And if you focus on what you do now, tomorrow will benefit from your efforts today. So the other thing about stoicism that I actually lo- like is that I can't control anything. I can only control myself. 
So if someone's your own mean thoughts, to me, your own actions. That's what yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm in control of my own thoughts, my own actions, and how I see the world. Nobody else is is, is into that. It doesn't matter what Reuben Carter, the uh, the hurricane, that movie with Denzel Washington, they got great thrown movie. in jail. Right? Yeah, it's a great movie. He was wrongly wrongly accused. But one of the things that people miss about that movie for him with Reuben Carter in real life was he told the warden, "You can take my body. You can put my body in a box. You can do whatever you can. Uh, I'm in control of my mind. I am not a prisoner." And so that 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 focus and not being angry about what happens, it, it's it's not easy to do. Not like, easy. Don't, don't no, get me wrong. You need to practice that every single day. That's exactly not easy. just like basketball, just like yep. any sport you do, man. You got to people people forget and they think that um, oh, I just you know I just they watch. I was telling my wife the other day we're, we're talking about this watching the new the NBA restart. They watch people watching the NBA. People think those side steps, those step backs, one dribble pull ups are easy, and because it looks easy when you see experts doing it, right? And then when you actually see them, they don't show them in the in the lab or in, in in the you know in the practice court for shooting a thousand shots a day. So Damian Lillard can shoot from half court, right? It's not as easy. I mean, I can't shoot from half court because I don't <laughs> practice that crap. You know, yeah. you know, for fifteen hours of my day. So it's that that level of work you got to put into something that's important to you. So you're living in Toronto, Canada. Um, where did basketball, the love of basketball, stem from before you really started playing at a higher level? How did that play a role in what you wanted to do with your life? That's a great question. I uh, that's back like, in the eighties, uh, you know, mid to late eighties, early nineties, and that's when you know I, all my all my friends where we lived, we lived, we ended up, we ended up. My parents split when I was younger. We ended up in public housing, um, like say 85, 86 or so, eighty five, eighty six, and so for about ten years we lived in public housing. My mom worked multiple jobs, worked did insurance, but she also worked in a factory uh, to make ends meet because the money wasn't a lot. And she, as a woman, especially back then, and as an African woman, she didn't have a lot of opportunities. So I understood the importance of that. But I played ball like I, we were all our own, like our sibling. I had four of us. We were all basically only children in sorts because we were so far apart. So I had a lot of friends who hooped, and I started hooping with them. But what got me thinking more about basketball as an opportunity is when I started looking at Street and Smith, that magazine. A lot of cats don't know that now. I mean, I know they look at Slam and like some other stuff. Everything is online now. But back then, Street and Smith was 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 a magazine, man. That was what people looked at. You saw the rankings of players. You saw, you know, as a Jim Jackson and all these guys that were that were like, oh, this guy's going to be the man, and they're going to Florida State. This guy's going to Ohio State. Like you could see, you know, the recruiting. It was basically a recruiting magazine, man. It was huge, and that's when I first saw that. Holy cow! There's an opportunity for me to to move forward by by doing something, you know, especially with basketball. So it pretty much played a role in your overall path like you said yes. you just want to advance in anything whether it's basketball your career but you know that there you saw some form of advancement and you just wanted to go after it yeah exactly so i guess your recruiting process to college i mean we could call a spade a spade here and say you weren't a heavily recruited player in high school not, is that not even all <laughs> not at all well, I, I wasn't the funny thing is i was in canada so i made all toronto so i was on the all toronto team in the catholic league okay and toronto has about two million people so it's a pretty deep pretty it's a pretty big, big city, yep. and I, I did pretty well, like domestically. But that's again, that's in the in the nineties where yeah, yeah, yeah. you weren't Canadians weren't going. You didn't have these Canadian players. No R.J. Barrett. But as a matter of fact, I played against his father in high school. Oh wow, that's right, great. Um, Rowan Barrett. And so guys like Rowan and a bunch of other guys, like they 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 only ended up going to St. John. They weren't going to Duke. They weren't. You know what I'm saying? So you could see the the level of play. Anthony Bennett, like it was guys like that. I mean, he went to UNLV, but. There are a lot of guys like that you never saw going to big time schools. They're going to schools that were obscure or old or something like that. And so, Canada, I was like recruited, you know, especially in Toronto and a bunch yep, of other of surrounding schools. But I had no, I had literally no interest in staying in Canada. Even if they gave me a full ride and everything <laughs> else, I was not staying. I was going to make it work somehow. So, tell us about this infamous book, The Comparative Guide to American colleges. Oh and, yeah. I, I, <laughs> and want I heard it in one of your podcasts and you talked about how no matter what you weren't staying home. You love Toronto, but you wanted to come to America. So regardless, I still have the book. Uh, I'm looking at you guys can't see it, but I'm looking at it. The torn I, cover, the I heard about it, so to see it, the yellow pages, uh worn a out, library card a library card insert. So tell our listeners, you know, I heard about it on one of your other podcasts, but you know, oh, that's great, man. Seeing I that. will. I, I still have one of the one of the letters I got from like Wheeling Jesuit uh, University, uh, D two school in West Virginia. This was in uh, 1994. I got this. 
So um, obviously there was no social media, no YouTube yeah. clips. You couldn't just text the coach. You couldn't, you know, uh, reply all to, to college coaches. So what was that process like sort it, of recruiting yourself to America? It, it was insane. So I went to the library, got that book that you saw. Obviously I didn't return it. Um, but maybe they're looking for me. I <laughs> don't know. But... Safe with us. Don't worry. <laughs> Thank you. Don't tell nobody. <laughs> nobody in Canada come after me in Toronto. But I, so I got the book and I was going through the, I was, I said, this is what I'm going to do. I was like, um, I, I can go to a camp, but you never know who's coming. You don't know anything. So I literally got this book. I went, I went, uh, I got a WordPress, uh, not WordPress. What do you call it? Uh, WordPerfect back then. I had a computer. The monitor was like black <laughs> and the, the, the font was orange and there was no graphics. It was like, that's 1993, man. It's, it, yeah. it, there's nothing. The only video games is Carmen San Diego and Commodore 64. <laughs> For those who are listening, they don't know what I'm talking no. about. It sounds like I talk crazy, but this is, this is reality. So I'm sitting there. I type a letter out. I printed on a dot matrix as a form letter, dear coach, a dear blank, and then I'd fill in the name of the person with a with, with you know with a with pen, and at the bottom I'd sign it, and I'd say, hey, look, I, this is my stats, this is where I went to school, this is who I've played against, you know, it's basic a recruiting letter, and then I said I attached it, uh, I had uh, I made copies of uh, videotapes of my high school games, some of my best games and stuff like that, highlights and how and some clippings from in, in the in the news and stuff, put it up in a package. First I you know, first I sent the letter, and then I'd send the tape if I got response. I sent letters to Duke, North Carolina, <laughs> hey. uh, D two schools that you saw. Yeah. I sent. I sent to. I just went. I didn't know any. I didn't know D two three. I didn't even care. I just went through all this. And I sent them to as many like at least two to three hundred schools, and I had a, I had a bunch of interest. I used to get letters in the mail. I was excited about that. But that was a start of how I ended up, you know, trying to find you know, trying to find a school in the U S. to go play. So that was it. You had your you had your mindset on it, and you were going to do anything in your power to help get you to where you wanted to go. Yeah. Where did uh, where'd you make that choice? Where What college was it and what drew you there? And then what came next? So um, real quick story. It's and this is something I always share. I kind of share randomly. And I, I forgot about the story, but it's so the book actually got me uh, a lot of interest. But what actually got me uh, an actual few schools that I was interested in were um, was a camp I went to called Metro. I think it was called Metro Stars. It was in. Uh, Baldwin Wallace uh, College in Brio, Ohio, and I had to I had to I worked multiple jobs to come up with the money. It was like a couple hundred dollars to to go to the camp. They played for your food. It was like a week long camp. Um, guys like Melvin Levitt were at the camp. He played at Cincinnati um, back then. He was like top ten in the country or twenty in the country, or whatever. And there's a bunch of other guys that were big time Division One. Um, he was the MVP of the camp. There's a bunch of other. I made the All Star team, and that set me apart. And then I ended up. Uh, meeting a bunch of D three and D two schools, okay. and I ended up cho- going to literally uh, the three schools that I was focusing on was wh- actually four. Uh, one was Hillsdale College, a D two school in Michigan. The other one was um, Oberlin College, a D three school. Uh, Calvin College was a D three school in Michigan, and then Wheeling Jesuit University College at the time in West Virginia. And so they all gave me either full or partial. The D three schools ca- got, gave me a, a lot of um, need based money yep. and. So that that level of money was actually better than some of the D two schools at the time, because as you know, as a coach, a lot of the D two schools and NIA schools they have maybe five or six scholarships, but they cut them up into pieces so they can have a full roster. So at the end, you still got to come out of pocket, and in many cases, coming out of pocket's a lot more. So I ended up so I so the story I was going to tell you about that camp was um, I got on a, I took a Greyhound bus from Toronto there. It was like fifteen hours. It was Jeez. insane. It was. It was. Just, I had to go. I had to go to Pittsburgh. I had to go somewhere else. It was. I had to go all different. All these different places, man. So then eventually I get to Cleveland. I get there. I I told them this is what I was doing. So when I get to the uh, to the to the bus station, I'm gonna call someone. Come pick me up. Okay. And they said, Yeah, they, everything's arranged. I show up there. I only have like five dollars and quarters. Um, I I, I spent a dollar just you, calling. You didn't have your times. iPhone on you. I'm guessing it. <laughs> no, dude. No iPhone. No Android. I mean, carrier pigeon wasn't even. I couldn't even. A carrier was the only thing I could have used. You know. Um, I didn't have money for a cab. I had no idea where the hell it was. There's no GPS. There's no map quest. There was none of that stuff. I maps. I didn't even, I mean, I, I didn't, I mean, shoot, I didn't know any of that. <laughs> so I'm sitting in a Greyhound bus station, a 17 year old with a, with a suitcase and I'm, I'm calling I'm, I'm there late. I, I remember I knew something was wrong. Like at 11 o'clock at night, nobody was answering the phone. I started freaking out and I was like, and then I got, then I got upset and I was like, you know what? Why am I getting upset for? I just spent 15 hours in a bus for this, for this thing. Right. Like that, this me sleeping in this bus station is just a small, it's a small price to pay to get to the camp where I may be able to get my dreams met. You see what I'm saying? So 
at the time I was kind of annoyed, but I was like, this is a small blip yep. in, in, in what I'm trying to do. Like, as long as I'm not dead, I'm fine. I didn't sleep either. I just, I one eye open, I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting in a thing like this, one eye open. I had my bag wrapped around my arm. I swear, I, I remember, like, to this day, I remember I was listening. I had a, I had a yellow Walkman, had a Walkman playing. I brought extra batteries because so I was afraid I was going to run wow. out of batteries. And, I, and the next day, they, you know, at 9 o'clock, whatever, they saw the messages. They were freaking out. I called them again. They came and got me. And then, you know, the rest was history with, with the, the camp. But that was just a small little blip in, in, the, in the grand scheme of what I was trying to accomplish in life. Amazing. Amazing. So you go on to Calvin College. You have a pretty good career, I read in your book, which we'll get into later. Um, mm-hmm. By your senior year, you were an honorable mention, all team, mm-hmm. if that, you know, so a pretty yep. solid career. But nothing jumping out on headlines, nothing getting nope. major attention. But part of your path is you wanted to go overseas and play professionally. And that was in your, yes. that was in your mind from the second you picked up a basketball and you started yes. reading that magazine. So yes. let's, let's go through that now process. We, I saw the book, I saw the book, what you did to get to college. Now, now how did this work wanting to go overseas? And see, the thing and the funny thing is, um, I knew part of life, you have to be self-aware. I knew I wasn't an NBA player mm-hmm. and, and not because of athletic ability. Ability. I had a, I had a, like a, I had a 36, 37 inch vertical as a six, five, you know, six, five. And I was strong. And so the, my problem wasn't athletics. My mm-hmm. problem was I didn't, I didn't get the right skill at the right time. I should have, what I, at, at 18 years old, I should have started at like when I was like 11, you know, do actually doing the work and actually developing a skill set. And I didn't know that. There's, mm-hmm. there's no YouTube. I can't go to YouTube and yep. see drills. I can't get master class. That's something that exists. It was books, you know. So you got, and that doesn't help. Like I can't read. Set a pick. Okay. And what else do I do next? Like I can't. The book can't help me. So when I went, and here's the thing. What this is where the the playing professional got into me. Um, I remember I went to visit two schools. One of the schools I went to visit was Calvin, and then he had a player on that team. It was an All American and Player of the Year for all Division Three back then. And he was about to he, – he had a workout with the Orlando Magic um, because in Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, the one of the owners of Amway who also owned the Orlando Magic was – went to my college. So before I went there. So so he went when he was younger or whatever, and he started Amway with his partner. So he ended up getting getting a, a, an opportunity to work out with the, with the Magic. Um, and then he went to play overseas for a couple of years. And I was like, holy sh-. really? I was like, damn, you get to, you can play overseas, even playing here. I was like, and I was like, okay, this is, this is what I'm going to do next. After this, this is what I'm going to do next. Yeah. And so at the end, I, I, I was a fifth year senior. Uh, my sophomore year, I ended up uh, having meniscus, tearing my meniscus. And so I was, I just sat out the year and it worked on academics. And then when I, uh, six months before I started, I started this process in December of my senior year. Uh, going into the conference season, and I started planning as to what I was going to do. I, I created a website. I uh, back when you could do free websites on uh, like Yahoo and like uh, uh, Tri Cities or what Lycos that kind of crap back in like ninety seven ninety eight. And so I did a free website. I had put some video on there when when you could put video. I put some some images of me, some highlights and stuff like that. It's kind of like a one page you know um, website thing. And here's how I did it. I had I had tapes made. I went to the audio visual department. They taught me how to cut videotape and put in put in music. I put in music, laid everything. I learned all that from them. Created videotapes that I use, and then I went to a site called Eurobasket. So people know what Eurobasket is today. Back then, Eurobasket was new. I ended up uh, getting to know the founder of Eurobasket wow. um, because it was in its infancy. This is 1999, 98, 99. So I, I used to email the dude all the time at Eurobasket. And he would put me in touch with people in, in, in countries. So the way they work is you have people in different countries who work for Eurobasket who, who follow that basketball league. So I got to know the guy from Eurobasket. He sent me to different places. And every country I, I got to know somebody, they'd send me a list of all the teams from the from the, the, from the uh, what's it called? From the, the conference or whatever it was called for each country. They sent me all the list, the, the manager's name, the website, and then uh, the email address and phone number. And I just sent emails. Every day, I'd send you know thirty, forty, fifty emails a day. That's all I would do. Sending, hey, da da da, this is whatever. Here's my, ta- you know, want a tape? I'll send it over. Some people responded. I sent tapes. Oh, I like the tape. Well, we'll think about it. We're not sure. And that's it. And what happened? And in the meantime of that, I'll one quick story. In the meantime, when that was happening, I ended up me- talking to somebody about um, someone thought it'd be a good idea for me to, for me to do athletes in action. Okay. So um, some people may or may not know what that is, but athletes in action, they go across the whole world, multiple, you know, they play in multiple countries, multiple sports too. Some do, you know, um, uh, tennis and volleyball and stuff like that. But I was with the basketball team and it was a Canadian team. 
that went overseas and it's a Christian missions type trip. So you go there, you don't really, you know, don't really hit people over the head with a Bible, but you kind of talk <laughs> about Christianity yep, a bit. Yep. And then, but you, but then you play basketball, you know, and so people, you know, don't really get too mad at that, <laughs> at that you know? Um, and so, so I, I ended up, uh, the funny thing is I ended up raising, they, they needed me to raise about $2,500. I ended up raising $5,000. I just sent emails. I just sent letters to people I knew and they, everyone was sending me a hundred dollars here, fifty dollars here. Next thing I know, I had like $5,000. Um, I ended up going on a trip. We went to, I went to North Korea. Wow. I went to China. I was in Taiwan for a couple of weeks. Um, and that whole time I didn't have any, I had no, no basketball prospect. I was still doing the same thing. I was in Europe and in, in uh, some internet cafe, sending emails, taking a look at what's going on, talking to some people. Some people were kind of interested. And then when I came back for about a week, I ended up going to Iran for another similar type of trip. I was in Tehran for about a week and a half. Um, but before that ended up happening, I got a call from somebody with an, with a French accent. I didn't understand what he was saying. And I thought it was a joke and I, I almost hung up on the guy and I was like, I was like, Hey, he said, no, 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 this is a guy from da, 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 from Switzerland. I was like, what? And then we started, he started talking. I understand French and he started talking in French and I was like, okay, I understood what he was saying in French cause I, I'm Canadian. I, I learned French. And then he's like, we, we like you. We saw your tape. You know, we'd like to, you know, we want to send you a contract. I was like, what? <laughs> I literally almost started crying. Oh, I was like, great. you don't understand. Like, my, I was like, it's like when you, you, you run the end of the last suicide and you're done. And I don't know. I just, I felt a sense of relief. I started crying. And then they sent me, you know, a contract. You know, I said, whatever the, the, the fee was, whatever the, the pay was, it was fine. And then when that happened, I just, you know, I signed it, sent it back. A week later, I got on a plane. I don't, that's not true. They sent it to me on a Saturday. I had to return it as soon as possible because then on Monday, I was flying overseas to Frankfurt to get my visa to go to Iran. Wow. So you literally did everything in your power that you can do to help reach this level that you wanted to get to. And I'm yes. sure that moment, that feeling, uh, you know, was definitely extremely emotional. I mean, players today, you know, they have agents. They have, yep. you know, players today could just sit back and, you know, they, they put in the work. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, uh, but they let their highlight tapes and everything do the work. But you know, you did it all yourself, and that's that's amazing, man. Kudos to you. How special? How special was it to your personal growth? Not even as a basketball player, just like as a person to get the opportunity to play overseas and see other parts of the world and experience other cultures and seeing how the rest of the world lives. It was the best, one of the best experiences of my life, and because. Again, this is not for everybody. Just to be clear, there are a lot of great basketball players who can't handle the pressure. You see that you see it happen in the in the NBA all the time. They can't handle the pressure just in the NBA. Now imagine going overseas where you're one of the few people who are getting paid, right? And then and then if you don't perform, you get fired. And there are people lining up to who do exactly what you're doing, probably better for half the money. So every single day you have that pressure in your head you have to perform it's not like oh i only got 10 points today that's not that's not good enough a couple of 10 point games gets you sent home and they just they just cut you with the quickness they say here's your plane ticket thank you and we'll just take you to the airport now you're like what i have you're done it's over so it's a level of pressure but in the same token back to, back to, you know i always i always draw my past experiences so when I was playing in Switzerland and I was I was getting double teamed at, at half, like after six second half of the season I'm getting double teamed every single game we inbound the ball double team and I still had to put up put up uh, points right first half of the year I was averaging about thirty five and then I got double teamed I ended up I ended up averaging twenty five and I went back to the time when I slept in a bus station I was like I'm already here so I have to figure out how to make this work I can't talk about what's fair what's not fair it doesn't matter my teammates had jobs during the day. Right, I'm the only guy getting paid a full salary, and my teammates had jobs at the end of the day, so I can't blame them. They got families, they, they, and then they're playing basketball, you know, kind of for fun in a way. And I'm, I'm the one, get, I'm the professional, so I got to operate as, as such. But to your point, I ended up spending time in, in Spain, in Portugal, in England. I had a uh, colleague, I had a uh, former teammate in college who was playing in the Netherlands. I went to go see him for a weekend, you know, kind of like a weekend trip. You know, like you go to the Jersey Shore. I can hop on a plane for fifty dollars and go to Amsterdam and hang out there for two days and then come home. You know, stuff like that. I, I went to Belgium. I spent time in France. I went all over the place in Western Europe that I'd never be able to do as a grown up because it costs a lot of money later on to come back. You know, and plus, if you get married, have kids, that 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 those those dreams are done. So, um, to your question, to your point, it, it was really it was imperative for me to understand that. Now, the, the point I wanted to last point I want to bring up with that is I remember I had several players I knew, and so all the Americans would hang out 
in the in the same in the same league. But you live in different cities. But we talk and we try to meet up and hang out because we're all Americans, right? But the thing was this: I had a there's a few guys that played um, that I met who were homesick, and I and I, I I could not understand for the life of me how you can do this and then be homesick. How you think this is because you're gonna go back when you're fat. At 50, 20 years later, and you're married, you got kids, you're going to be like, I had a chance to play professional basketball once. And you that's, that's exactly the story you're going to tell yourself. And it's not going to be funny because everyone's going to be laughing at you because you don't look like you played anything, right? So I was like, just enjoy the moment where you are today. Don't worry about what's happening at home. They're still living their life. Uh, well said, man. I mean, even it seemed when, even when things were tough, even not even for yourself, uh, guys you knew, you were able to see through the right perspective. And uh, it's funny, I, my wife just – something came from amazon again today you know what i mean and she gets <laughs> and she's the best and, and she got this great uh quote and i think it says uh i want to get this right i remember when i prayed for what i have now yeah you know and that going back to living in the present and not worrying about the future you, you're remembering what you did the emails you sent the bus stations you slept in to get where you yep. are and uh you know that's just a beautiful thing to hear man that is dope uh i gotta write that down with the first half winding down um, can you give some of our student athletes who are listening some words of wisdom for the kids who want to make a high school team, for the high school players who want to play at the collegiate level, for the college players who aspire to play overseas? From your experiences, please share the difference between just wanting to go to the next level versus making it a reality and doing something about it. It, 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 it For every level of where you're at in basketball, it requires work. The, one of the bene- one of the blessings of Kobe Bryant's death is that you saw. I mean, we always knew that he worked hard, but the one of the blessings that we saw from his death is that you you when people started coming out and talking about his work ethic and what he did, you actually realized and were able to quantify what it took. That's just Kobe Bryant. There are a lot of people who are who are talented, and talent doesn't get you anywhere but seen. But at the end of the day, in order to have longevity and staying power and making that high school team, it's going to require that you have that you put in the work. Now. If you're trying to make a high school team, find out what the coach needs. If you find out if the coach doesn't want you to start playing point guard, don't play point guard, right? Go go play defense. Go rebound. Your goal is to get seen, and then you can start manifesting to something else and be a scorer or whatever else you want to do. Figure out what needs to be done to get you the time to play. The NBA is the same way. College is exactly the same way. If you're trying to make a collegiate team, same thing. Find out what your coach wants. Find out what he needs, you know, for that particular team. In many cases, maybe he just wants you to guard the hardest, you know, the the the, the best guy in the conference. You shut that guy down. Guess what? Guess who's going to be getting twenty to thirty minutes a game? It's going to be you. Same thing when it comes to going overseas. I, I never had an agent. Nobody was interested in thing, anything I had to say. I had to learn how everything worked, and then I started to operate and did everything that I could, even if it didn't work out. I knew that I did my best. I didn't wait for somebody. Or I didn't wait to be put on or be hooked up. I just did whatever I had to do. And in most cases, you end up being more lucky when you start doing things that 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 increase the likelihood of you getting what you want. Luck rewards hard, hard work. You know, yeah. I always I yep. always tell my my kids laugh. I call it the basketball gods. You know, they reward. Yep. It's not luck. They reward hard work, man. Well said. It's like good old fashioned supply and demand. You know, yes. find out where that demand is and provide the service. We're going to break for halftime real quick, and we'll be back with our friend Abang Eka. When most people think of sports in Canada, we immediately elicit thoughts of ice hockey. After all, the sport of hockey was developed in Montreal and is the national winter sport of Canada. The Great White North has produced an endless list of all-time great hockey players, as well as being the most successful country in Olympic ice hockey history posting 13 Olympic gold medals over the past century. There is no question that basketball has long lived in the shadow of hockey in Canada. However, the popularity of basketball in that country has steadily increased and is currently peaking at an all-time high. And why not? Although the father of basketball, James Naismith, created the sport in Springfield, Massachusetts in 1891, a fact overlooked by many is that Naismith was a born, raised, and educated Canadian from Ontario. Canada is rapidly being represented in both Division I college basketball and in the NBA. This past year saw a record of 150 Canadians on D1 rosters, which was up from 133 in the previous season. Additionally, Canada set an international record of six players selected in the NBA draft, including first-round picks R.J. Barrett, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, and Brandon Clark. With 16 Canadians in the NBA, 
Canada leads the way in international players and now has the record for most players from a single country other than the USA to make opening night rosters. When today's guest, Abang Eka, was playing ball in Canada during the early to mid-90s, youth participation in basketball was low, and the Toronto Raptors were in its infancy stages of becoming an NBA franchise. Over the past 25-plus years, Canada has continually grown the game with achievements such as hosting the first international NBA All-Star game in 2016, producing eight-time All-Star and two-time MVP Steve Nash, having two Canadian-born players in Anthony Bennett and Andrew Wiggins selected first overall in NBA drafts, and seeing the Raptors go from the team you couldn't help but feel sorry for to world champions after knocking off the Golden State Warriors in six games last season. So what do we attribute this Canadian shift of attention to the hardwood? Could Canada's change in demographics play a part? Or how basketball has become a more global game overall in the 21st century? Is it simply due to the rise of success for the nation's only professional team, the Raptors? Whatever it may be, basketball enthusiasts around the world can certainly hear Canada's chants of We the North, loud and clear. We are talking with the charismatic Abang Eka. We spent the first half talking about his amazing journey to America, his persistency to pursue his love of basketball that took him to play at the collegiate level, as well as a couple of years professionally overseas. Now let's get into your uh, professional career off the court. Yes. Accounting. I know it's not the most exciting profession out there. At all. (laughs) But clearly it's not easy to become a CPA. I mean, some of my closest friends are CPAs and I've seen firsthand the process, but why accounting? You know, for a charismatic guy like you, a guy full of energy and full of uh, competitiveness. Talk about accounting and sort of where that brought you now in your professional career. You, you, when we're finished with this interview, you and everybody's listening is going to see a general trend in my life and how I operate. It's okay. going to be everything's consistent. Everything thing that I've done that of any value has the same blueprint. So what I realized in the, when I was in 1994, as a freshman, I had undeclared major. That's why it took me five years because I switched my major my sophomore year. First of me, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was speaking to my uh, uh, academic counselor. Her name was Darlene. She's a she was she's Canadian, but she had married somebody and had American citizenship through marriage. I didn't know how that worked, so I, I just said to her, "I was like, I know I'm on a work. I'm on a school visa. How do I get? What do I need to do in order to be able to move to the U.S. permanently? I just want to be here. I don't want to be. Get, I don't want to come here for four or five years and then go home." And she's like, "Well, you have to." A, she said, there's a series of professions that you should probably look into um, that usually um, the, the likelihood of you getting a visa to work is, is a lot higher. And so she gave me a list. The list was like doctor, lawyer, nurse, clergy, economist, and accountant was on there. I was already in the business, kind of in a general business uh, um, undergrad. And I had no idea what I wanted to major in. And then I was like, well, you know what? I'm going I'm to go into accounting because a little bit more specialized. I saw it on the list. I started taking accounting classes, and then eventually I just majored in accounting. And then I also knew that becoming a CPA would also set me apart when it came, when it came time to me becoming a citizen. So that was I literally strategically made that decision in 1994 that I was going to become a CPA. And I tell people this now. I'm already, I became a citizen about four years ago. And so oh, I tell people this now. Congratulations, man. That's amazing. Thank you. I got my green card. I did it all through employment, and I did it the right way. And then I eventually you know, ended up getting my citizenship. And now I'm in a different place. But that, what, where I am to, in 2020 was a decision I made in 1994. Now, who, who, most, who, in you, who in your right mind, including yourself, has the ability to wait that long to get what you want? Kind of what you said earlier in our first segment. I remember when I prayed for what I have now. That just that has moved me to hear that for mm-hmm. that particular reason. I remember when in 1994 I used to pray, I can't wait, I wish, I pray. Please tell me what I need to do. And now I'm in this place. So – that's what that was a decision I made in order to in order to be able to eventually immigrate here. And I also knew it's recession proof if I focus on the right type of you know accounting and stuff. And and that's that's the reason why I became a CPA. It was all part of the master plan. And that's yep. sometimes it's that simple, ladies and gentlemen. Yep. I mean, it's not easy. It takes sometimes twenty plus years, twenty plus years. But it was all part of his master plan. And he knew it would take him one step closer to his ultimate goal. And that's let me just, add one last thing with that, please. because what people don't realize is for people of color, African Americans especially, there the percentage of African American CPAs is probably last I checked was about is less than one percent, less than one percent. So when you meet somebody of color, 
who has their CPA designation, they're in a very, very small class of uh, or section of, of the population when it comes to CPAs. It's not a very easy exam to pass. It's four parts. You have to spend, you, most people spend six months of their lives studying for it. Yeah, I've seen I it. failed multiple times. You know, anybody, everybody who knows somebody can tell you how they failed and what it was like when they failed and how crazy it is. So it's a very difficult thing to get through. But again, I wasn't thinking about how I felt today. I was thinking what it was going to be like later on when I was a CPA and I could put Abong Eka CPA and, and do that at my job. And that's what got you through it when it was that's tough got to see in that light, the, the good old light at the end of the tunnel. And this career and these accolades you got as a CPA and passing that test and just building on your professional toolbox, that brought you to appear on Fox News, CNN. Yep. You know, we're going to talk about you know your role as, as an author on MSNBC, you were a TEDx and motivational speaker, Huntington Post contributor. I mean, again, that stuff doesn't just happen with the snap of a finger. And yeah. what were some of those experiences like? Uh, you know, being in front of a camera and being able to speak professionally on some of the most important topics that affect the whole world. It, it, it was it was phenomenal. And, and the way I started, I, my first ever uh, hit on TV was with Fox News. I ended up doing a show called Follow the Money. Eric Bowling. I had a friend who used to work for Fox. She still works for Fox News. She's a talking head at Fox News. She's in politics and stuff like that. And I met her like all the other political people I know here in the Washington, D.C. area. And she's like, you, I think you do great on TV. And also they want people of color who are, who can, who are eloquent and can speak and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, you know, I, I like that. I think it'd be great. I'd, I'd be, I've always been interested in that. So she started out with, um, the booker hooked me up, put me on that show. I was next to Bo Deedle. A lot of people may or may not know who he is. But it was me and Bo Deedle and two other people on the other side. And we're talking about uh, Russia and we're talking about Hugo Chavez and a bunch of other stuff. And that was the first hit I ever had. And then what ended up happening was this. Remember what you, you were saying before about uh, hard work? Uh, you end up being more lucky, luckier the, the harder you work. Yep. So I did that. I did a pretty decent job on that, on that, on my first ever hit. And then CNN saw me. And then I ended up doing a CNN hit a few weeks after that for Thanksgiving, doing Black Friday, whatever. I did it in the studio. And then MSN, MSNBC saw the CNN hit. And then two weeks after that, they reached out to me saying, hey, we want you to come on Chris Jansen's show and come on live, seven-second delay in the morning, and talk about things that they just come up. I'm not even prepared. They just say, hey, hey, talk about this. And just so happened, I just read the paper that morning. So I had to knew what was going on. And I was able to opine and give like some some answers and some answers to some questions that were – that just came up spur of the moment. Um, but every single time I did a TV appearance, it got me better for the next one. And it opened up doors for the next thing that I was doing. And allowed that, because I got comfortable sitting in front of the camera, that made it easier for me to sit in front of, you know, a thousand people and get paid to speak to people and then do more television and stuff like that. So cool, man. A good old snowball effect. You know, yeah. it doesn't always have to be a negative thing. You know, people think yes. they hear the snowball effect, but it's, it works the other way around. You know, like you said, one hit leads to the next. Yep. And you succeed in the present like we spoke about. And next thing you know, um, you're rolling along. So that's awesome. Let's get into your book. Uh, sure. Stop me up the no business business plan. I read it this weekend down at my in-laws uh, show house. I'm looking at it now. Uh, what that's a great, awesome. re- what a great read, man. Uh, Thank you. I wish I would have had it as a resource when I was younger and aspiring to start my own business. Uh, I loved how it was just almost as if you were just talking to the reader. You really weren't yes. writing it. You didn't need a yes. master's degree and and know a complex Wall Street vocabulary to understand the book. You simply just told it like it is, and it made it yes. easy and fun to read. Yes. Where did uh, where the inspiration to become an author stem from, and what was that process like to get I, I, published? I wanted, I wanted to get – I always wanted to get – I think it's important if you have anything of value. And I mean, I know it's relative value, but – um, we all think what we have is valuable, which in many cases I think we do. It just depends on what it is. We have we have an opportunity and an obligation to get that out and to share that. So the 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 reason that book came about was because early two thousands, actually even when I was in college, I did a project on on dot coms, on like internet businesses and stuff. And so part of my project for econ was I, I created a, an online bookstore for colleges for you to get buy and sell your books on col- for colleges. My prof- I remember my pro- I remember this to this day. My professor laughed and said that was a horrible idea. No one's ever going to do it. And then like two years later, you know, e like five different bookstores came out, Varsity Books and eFall and everything else. And they all went public and everyone made hundreds of millions of dollars. And I sent my the professor an email saying, "Do you still think it was a dumb idea?" And he said, <laughs> yeah, "You were right, whatever." So what I said, ended up realizing is. Uh, at that time, there was an opportunity to do something. So I kept writing business plans uh, for ideas I had and for other people. People would pay me. I'd write a business plan for them. I did one for I did a few for myself. And I had a couple ideas that almost took off, almost got term sheets and funding for, and then the dot-com bubble exploded. 
And what I realized was this. Every single time I pitched somebody, nobody read the business plan. They only read four parts of the business plan that were important. And then I realized that's the most important piece. And we're just wasting our time putting a bunch of stuff together that really nobody reads. And it's all made up anyways. So that's what led to me thinking about a a general book idea. So what ended up happening with the book was I spent at least a year and a half to two years trying to get a book deal. And the way a traditional publish, publishing opportunity works is you got to put together a query, which is like a one-page uh, synopsis of the book, who's going to read it and why, and why are you the person to write it. And then you have to shop that to your literary agent. So you have to shop it to all these different literary agents across the country who will, who will sign you, and then you'll put together a full book proposal, and then you go sell it to a publisher. So the reason they do do that is because they're, they're kind of like gatekeepers. So uh, unlike you know Fifty Shades of Grey, where she the person was self published and then, then she became rich, um, that that kind of starting to go away now. But if you want to do traditional publishing, you have to go through a publisher and a literary agent. Um, that makes it easier for you to get signed. So I, I I was writing proposals, and because I'd been writing queries for so long, it, it made it easier for me to end up writing a full proposal. So when I was trying to get a literary agent, I, I emailed at least two hundred and fifty to two hundred and sixty. Uh, literary agents over a year and a half period. And, you know, about 10% of them said no, and the rest didn't even respond. And then one day I got a, I got a call from, again, this goes back to, you know, going to college, playing professionally. Yeah, it sounds, the like, same a, kind sounds of like a familiar script here. I, I'm sounds telling like you, man, that's what script. I was saying earlier. It's the same path. It's the only thing I know. Like, <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't think I know. Worst case scenario, I do all that, it doesn't work, and then I just keep it moving. And so I ended up, I ended up uh, getting a call from a literary agent. Right? So I had a literary agent reach out to me saying, hey, I think I have a publisher who wants to, you know, who's interested in you as, as an author. I said, great. So it was one of the biggest biz, business book publishers called AMA, American uh, Management Association. They wanted to publish, they wanted me to write an accounting book. And I was like, now that I look back, that probably would, that would have been a good idea as well because, um, you know, that I would have been in the in accounting communities. But anyways, so I said, no, I think I wanted to write something like this. And then they, they said, yeah, we're kind of interested. And then they changed their mind after, after the literary agent already signed me. I was, I was distraught. I was like, man, I spent all this time and I, I just felt deflated. And I ended up talking to a good friend of mine. His name is Matt Paxton. He is a star of a TV show, Hoarders. Um, and now he has a new show called Legacy List on PBS. And so we're, became, we're good friends. I've known him for at least a decade. And so I called him uh, and I said, hey, this is what's happening. I'm just, I, I just feel like quitting. This is insane. And he said, um, he's like, you know what? I was in a situation where that so same thing happened. And then before I thought I was going to quit trying to get something. And then all of a sudden hoarders came around. And he's like, you just need to keep pushing through this. This is the time you, this is the time you need to be pushing through. It's not when you, when you feel good and you're in a flow state writing your proposals. It's now when you feel like quitting. I was like, all right, cool. And then you know, two weeks later or 10 days, actually it was like 10 days later. Uh, my literary agent called and said, "Hey, you know what? Good news. I got I got you a book deal. I got you exactly the advance you wanted for it. And you know they're interested. They they can't wait to work with you." I was like, "What?" <laughs> and then I was like, "All right, uh, I, I couldn't believe it. I started freaking out. I was at a client site. I was freaking out and like dancing around and stuff. Pumping As you fist, should. Doing, As you should, man. It was, it was insane. <laughs> and then and then that's what. And then no, oh, that was that, that was the good news. The bad news is we need you to write this book in three months, <laughs> and we need sixty five thousand words." And it has to be, you know, organized and everything else and do that in three months. And I was like, all right, again, the next three months in my busiest, I was working 12, 13 hour days at a client site, 20 minutes away from where I live. I'd come home at nine o'clock at night and I would, I would literally sit down and write for four hours a day during the week. And on the weekends, I wrote for eight hours uh, each, each day. So 16 hours in a weekend, four hours a day in the evenings. Now, in the middle of the summer, people are going to the beach, drawing boats, you know, they're going all over the place to drink in. People are having, hey, let's go to the club. What are, all that stuff's happening. I'm sitting in my house in the summer, uh, you know, writing. And now, now that moment is like me sleeping in a bus station. That moment is like me getting told no to go play professionally. It was the same pattern. So I just kept pushing through. Got it done, 65,000 words. Um, delivered it like maybe a, the day of, the night of. And that was it. Oh, man, I- Hearing you, your story, I'm looking at a picture I have on my desk. It's I keep it in my suit jacket pocket for my games every time we coach. I show it to my guys, and I think you embody this vision. It's I think you've seen it. People on my listeners, you've seen it. It's the meme of it's a caricature of two guys mining down underground, yes. and the guy on top is hacking ferociously through the through the rough, through the walls, and you see the diamonds on the other side. He's far away. The guy on the bottom, he's just so close, and you see him walking away with the pick on his shoulder. And it's you never know how close or how many more 
chops you got to give or keep digging, keep digging. That's a message I try to get to my players that we're going to keep digging no matter, you know, what the end game result was of this game. We just got to keep digging because like you're living proof, man. You never know how close you are and you never give up on that dream or that master plan. And it's just uh, it's so Thank great you. to hear it. And, and there's there's a, a, a guy in a meeting. Um, his name is Greg Reed. He wrote a book called Three Feet from Gold. He um, is it's the same concept as a meme. Okay. And uh, he, he wrote this book with uh, Sharon Lecter, who is um, uh, part of the Napoleon Hill Foundation, a Think and Grow Rich guy. And uh, the forward is written by Mark Victor Hansen, who was a chicken soup for the soul guy. And the premise is the same as that meme in that you're three feet from goal and you never really realize that you've been hammering your whole life and you yep. don't realize how close you are. And because you may be an outster- external thing or somebody told you this or your friends told you, you know, don't do this and give up, you end up giving up. You yep. know, and you were so close. I love it. Shoot me that info after this. Uh, I will. Well, along with that book and we'll have Abong's book in the show notes. Please give it a read. It is uh like I mentioned, it's a good, fun read, and there's a lot of valuable st- valuable stuff in there. So clearly, you've heard the word no a few times in your life. <laughs> Sometimes, like you said, you didn't even get a response. Yes. But, uh, but it appears it only made you stronger. It helped motivate you even more. What can you tell some of our listeners that might be dealing with a no of some sort or a roadblock in their life in present right now? What could you, you know, I mean, you told a lot of great story, but if you could just wrap it up yeah. uh, and just give them something to get past that no in their life right now? The first thing I'd always say is the first, every time you get a no from somebody, it's not always about you. We automatically assume it's about us, why they're saying no. You don't know. The reason why they're, st- they're saying no could be because of somebody else that did them wrong, right? Or if it's a coach who won't let you, you know, won't put you in, it's because some guy let them down. Had nothing to do with you. The, 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 you're, you're paying for the sins of somebody else. So the, your, your goal is to find out why that person is saying no to you. It doesn't matter if it's someone you're trying to date, they're saying no for a reason. Sometimes it's not about you. Find out what the reason is and then, and then address that, confront that actual reason. The second thing is you have to be very clear on whatever goal you have that you're trying to accomplish. If you have no idea what the end looks like, I guarantee you your brain will not allow you to waste your time trying to achieve it. So every single person you see that wins MVP and everything else, you always don't, they start crying because of the sense of they realize that all the work they put in and how I – how many times you heard people say, I've thought about this so long, I've tried this – is because they were so clear in what they wanted the end to look like. And too many people have vague goals and vague dreams and vague visions. As a result, they get vague results. So if you're getting a bunch of no's, you need to figure out what your goal, what your end game looks like. Also find out why you're getting those no's, the reason behind it, and then put a plan together to continue to go through those particular no's. Well said, my man. Well said. All right, Ebon, we're going to call our final time out here on the show. I'm going to throw a minute on the clock for you. I'm going to fire some questions at you. First answer that comes to mind. You ready? Yep, ready. Let's do it. Childhood hero. Dang it. (laughs) Not easy. No, Marcus Aurelius. (laughs) Best thing about Toronto. Oh, uh, the food and the culture. We're talking Toronto here. Vince T-Mac. Ah, dang. Got to be Vince. <laughs> Kawhi or DeRozan? It's got to be Kawhi. Michael or LeBron? LeBron, 100%. <sighs> Who's winning the bubble championship this year? Oh, snap. Uh, the Lakers. Any special talents? Um, no, I, could, I, I can't even sing. <laughs> Favorite quote? Um, you're going to die. Best piece of advice you ever received. Shoot. It it really doesn't matter in the, in the grand scheme of, of life. Well said. Lastly, do you have any regrets in your life? No, it's a good question. Uh, regrets aren't even real. You know, you want me to finish keep that? Keep going, man. Buzz it sounded. Yeah, please. Okay, Buzz okay. it sounded. Uh, we got that last one in, but keep going. Good, good. Re- regrets aren't real. So there's a difference between regret and a mistake. A mistake is you tried something and it didn't work out. That's fine. Regret basically means you knew better at the time and you chose not to do what you thought you should be doing. That's why you regret. And that can be avoided. So I don't really have regrets because if it's, if I don't, if something doesn't feel right in my gut, I don't do it. If something doesn't feel right for me to say it, I won't say it. And so a lot of times it's a mistake or it's a learning experience. 
way to wrap it up. You know, that's definitely one of my biggest fears in life at any point. You hear the good old, the singing the coulda, yep. shoulda, wouldas. I hate that song. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you never want to be singing, you never want to be singing that song. And, and going back to your quote, man, you know, your quote is that you're going to yeah. die. Well, it's funny you're saying that. I'm looking at my phone. I have a reminder that pops up on my phone every day. It says, one day yeah. you're going to die, but not yep. today. Live. And I mean, you said it, and for people listening, it might be a shocker, but there's two ways to look at this real quick. There's two ways to look. There's, there's a way you look at it where you're sad. And the way you look at it as an inspiring reminder. It's like there's more time on the clock. Yep. If you know that it's going to end, you can either be like, oh, my God, life's going to be over. Or you can be like, oh, crap, I have another day. And the people who do good things in, in life, not only for the world, but for themselves and their family and their communities, they look at it the other way. They look, oh, I have more time. And let me get, let me get to going. Rather than those who just sit around and wallow and then make excuses and complain. Yes, sir. We packed uh, a whole lot of value in a short amount of time. Abon, can't thank you enough, my friend. Um, you have any final thoughts or comments? I know we talked about a lot of great stuff. We touched on a lot of different things. We have any final thoughts that just come to mind? And lastly, you know, any of your contact information for yeah. some of our listeners that want to reach out and learn more? The floor is yours. Yeah, of course. Uh, they can reach out to me on Twitter. That's my first and my last name. Same thing with Instagram, first and last name. You can you know, reach out. I put a lot of motivational stuff out there. A lot of things about stoicism and my thoughts and my beliefs and uh, just how I live my life. And I want to, one thing I want to be very clear about is when I give, when I give advice, it's because I'm looking at myself. I want to be very clear. I look, if I'm, if I'm trying to critique something, and I say something to critique to somebody, I ask myself the same question all the time. A lot of people don't know this. Uh, people who are close to me don't even know this. When I say, oh, you did this wrong, you did, you were wrong to me, I look at myself and say, what did I do that led to this? What role did I play? I always want to do that. Because then it keeps me humble to realize that I'm not the best of everything. I'm just trying to make it every single day and be, you know, be a, a real. I want when when I go, I want to be the person that people line up to come pay their respects because I had a I had a positive influence in their lives. Doesn't matter what it is, and so I have to operate it in that in that capacity. And I want you guys listening to do the same. Amen, man. I, I know you're a busy guy, but if you could find some time to come on my bench and join the staff, I think you make a. A hell of a basketball coach, my friend. Oh, uh, man, I've always wanted to be a coach. <laughs> it's, uh, I coached I coach a, a middle school team once. And, it's, uh, it's definitely in your future, fun. in the next chapter. Yeah. I see it. I mean, I'm sure all thank our you. listeners see it. Uh, Abon, thank, thank you again for being courtside with us today. We wish you all the best, my friend. Uh, thank you so thank much. You. Thank you. If you need anything else, Mike, Michael, Coach, you know, Cortez, please reach out to me. Let me know. Yeah, we will be in touch. You know, like I tell my seniors, you're stuck with me forever. You come courtside, <laughs> you're courtside forever. You're on the courtside awesome, team, man. Awesome. Thank you, sir. All right. All the best. Talk about a guy who stops at nothing to accomplish his goals. Abang Eka, what an amazing journey he's had and more great things, I'm sure, in his future. You've been listening to the Courtside Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Cortese. If you like what you heard, please go leave us a five-star rating and review down below. Hit that subscribe button on any of the major directories and go follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Courtside Podcast. Remember that C-O-R-T, Courtside Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate you, and we'll see you next Sunday. Just, just, just rock, rock, rock.